right, so the question is, who or what is your idol? So I'd just like to start by reading from the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 20, verse 1 to 5. Um, and here we have the Lord, you know, um, establishing, right, the Ten Commandments. I'd just like us to just focus on the specific commandment around idolatry. And so I'll read the first five verses of Exodus chapter 20, one of those pivotal chapters, as I like to call it, in the entire scriptures. And I'm reading from the Amplified Version. And it says, Then God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before or beside me. You shall not make yourself any graven image worship it or any likeness of anything that is in the heavens above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth you shall not bow down yourself to them or serve them for the Lord your God I'm a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me right, let us just pray and Commit this time to you, Lord. Lord, it's just a wonderful privilege to be able to share your word with your people. I just pray, Lord, that we will make our hearts receptive, our minds fertile to hear your truth, hear your word. And it's not just simply about stimulating our minds, adding to our knowledge. It's much more about honoring you. It's about you teaching us how to be even more obedient and to be faithful to you. And so, Lord, just ask to lead and to direct everything that is said. Enable your spirit to touch every heart, to comfort the hearts that are grieving and convict the hearts that have become complacent. Above all, Lord, be glorified in what we say, what we share. In Jesus' name. Now, we tend to dismiss idolatry because we think only of those who have visible forms of idols. This is still part of our world. And it's amazing that people in our modern world have been just as foolish and idolatrous as were all the pagans in the days of the Old Testament prophets. So we tend to say, well, you know, idolatry is something that you associate with an image and, you know, something that is of substance, physical substance, rather than, right, seeing that it is much more than just, you know, a physical representation. Now, the primary reason for God setting the children of Israel free from Egypt was to enable them to leave bondage in Egypt, to go out and worship him. It was principally about worship. As much as they were under the yoke of slavery, right? But the reason primarily for their release, for their freedom, right, was in order to go and worship God. Very hard if people are under oppression, people are under trauma, people are going through turmoil to really focus on anything and also even, right, to focus on worship. Because it's the way God designed us. 
And this was no different with the children of Israel when they were in captivity, when they were in bondage. Even when they were in captivity and bondage in Babylon. There's one account where, you know, they were being mocked and said, come on, sing us a song. And, you know, the children said, sing us a song, you know, of Zion. And they said, but how can we sing the Lord's song in a strange language? We're under oppression. How can we bring out this joy? How can we sing with any sort of um, joy and with any sort of exuberance under this bondage? So in a same, similar way, it was for the um, Hebrews in Egypt. Under bondage, they could not fully worship God. And God recognizes. So that's why, principally why God particularly sent Moses to order Pharaoh to release his children so that they can go and worship him. Yet inasmuch as they had physically um, left Egypt, yeah, sadly and tragically, they were spiritually still in bondage in Egypt. I recall some weeks ago, I think this one um, discipleship session, um, Brother Denzel was explaining to us that the ten plagues in Egypt, um, in one way or the other, struck at the heart of idolism in Egypt. You know, you could say that was a really painful and awesome lesson for both the children of Israel and also the Egyptians. So as much as God was showing his power and authority and might to the Egyptians over the idols in Egypt, it was also a lesson for the Egyptians. It says, hold on, your God, right, yeah, has no comparison, yeah, with the true and living God, right? So it was what you could say a double lesson yeah, for the Hebrews and also for the Egyptians, However, on leaving Egypt, the children of Israel had quickly forgotten God's warning about idolatry. The lessons that they had seen happened in Egypt, they seemed to have forgotten, they seemed to, right, yeah, had forgotten exactly how God had actually, in so many ways, right, put to flight, yeah, Destroyed, you could say, right, the old system of idolatry that had um, developed and evolved and emerged over maybe centuries in Egypt, right? Yeah, but somehow that spirit of idolatry went with the Hebrews, it went with them. And how do we know this? Well, I'm sure some of us are familiar with an account or an incident or an event that took place later on, right, on their journey from Egypt to the Promised Land. Just like to just read from Exodus chapter 32, verse 1 to 10, just to illustrate, just to highlight that particular incident of idolatry. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, they gathered together to Aaron and said to him, Make us gods to go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron replied, Take the gold rings from the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. 
Older people took the gold rings from their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold at their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made it a molten calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, which have brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And when Aaron saw the molten calf, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. The Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way which I commanded them. They have made them a molten calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, that brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen the people and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and that I, might that I may destroy them, but I will make of you a great nation. Mm, awesome. Now, given that the gravity of the sin of idolatry brought from Egypt to Sinai, it, should come as, as, it shouldn't come as a surprise that the first and foremost commandment was the worship of the true and living God and the rejections of all forms of idolatry. Let me go on to say that idolatry is the doorway to all other sins. And all sins are a form of idolatry. So just think about that for a moment. Right? Almost every sin right, has an element of idolatry involved. Because in essence, what we're saying, what we're doing is saying, right, right? Yeah. this particular activity, this particular behavior, this particular thought, this particular way of thinking and believing, right, matters more than the true and living God. And in some way or the other, every sin reflects a form of idolatry. And on the other side, every idolatry is always, as I said, the doorway that leads to other sins. And in a kind of way, the pandemic could be seen as a major test of idolatry. Now, what am I talking about? During the lockdown, ask yourself, as I would be asking myself, what were the attractions and interests that I missed most? Was it worship? Was it fellowship? Was it my faithfulness to God? Was it my, what you could say, my calling unto the Lord? Or was it other things? Not to say, you know, enjoying yourself, going out and um, appreciating the blessings that God has given us is wrong in themselves. No. But if we become consumed by those alternatives, then that is where we're drifting towards idolatry. And as I said, during the pandemic, what was it that preoccupied our minds? What was it that we missed so much? 
What was it that caused us to feel so, at times, desperate, frustrated, disheartened? I would venture to say that quite often, yeah, it's a reflection of our idolatry. It is something of our idolatrous nature that came out during the pandemic. Yeah, the things that consumed, the things that we missed most, was quite often the things that we sometimes, right, yeah, give more time and attention and more value to than the true and living God. Now, I won't actually read the chapter, but in your own time, you can read it, and I'm sure you've read it before. In Acts chapter 17, it opens our eyes to a new way of looking at idolatry. The Apostle Paul is experiencing a lot of bad things in this chapter. He is threatened by a mob and forced to leave two towns. He is deprived of the freedom to preach and the right to be with his companions. Paul, like his master Jesus, was despised and rejected of men. And they would have killed him had they gotten their hands on him. Now we find Paul's in Athens, waiting for his companions to catch up with him. And verse 16 of chapter 17 says, he was greatly distressed, not so much as a result of missing his companions or being persecuted, but he was greatly distressed to see the city was full of idols. And we should you know, notice that Paul was not just simply distressed, but he was greatly distressed. Right? And the Greek word yeah, that describes someone that is going through great distress is paroxysmal, from which you get the word paroxysm. And, you know, it is a word we hardly use today because we seldom have occasion to do so. But Pariximo speaks the, of the most intense emotion that one can describe, what one can experience. Right? It almost refers to a sort of um, a violent convulsion of anger. Right? You know, it doesn't just get, it does not just refer to getting angry. Right? <laughs> you know, in a, in, a, in a sort of mild way. Yeah? But in a very intense Right, in a very aggrieved way. That was what right, Paul felt when he saw the idolatry in Athens. And in the Greek Old Testament, yeah, the word paroxysmo is used to describe God's anger when he saw idolatry from his people. Because they'd had a revelation of God. They'd had an encounter with God. They'd seen God's hands. In so many ways, the children of Israel saw more miracles. They see more of God's power and might. His authority is, um, you know, supreme, you know, his, 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 his supremacy, his sovereignty. But yet, they still turned their backs on him and drifted into idolatry. And even when we look through, say, those, you know, chapters to do with the kind of um, the monarchs, the kings, right? The kingdom of Israel, the sin that stood out most, the sin, right, that almost invariably impacted on every reign was the sin of idolatry. 
And so we see now, even in the New Testament, right, that Paul is also experiencing that great sense, right, of anger. Not directed at any individual or an institution, but just directed at idolatry because of, right, the serious nature of idolatry. Now let me go on to suggest that idolatry should be the most offensive thing to the Christian mind. Yeah? We're so ready to point fingers at other sins and say that is terrible, that is evil, that is such and such. However, idolatry. The first commandment is addressing idolatry, which is very pivotal. And so idolatry continued to be and should be the most offensive thing to the Christian mind. But the fact is, idolatry is so widespread and deeply rooted in our culture, we do not even see it. It's like the fish, they say, will be the last to discover water. Because why? It's so much water, it's so much part of everything it does, it doesn't even recognize it. In some ways, you could do a sort of an analogy with us, right? We are so much a society yeah, that is deeply set in idolatry that we don't even recognize it. But we as Christians need to understand right, the, um, the gravity of idolatry. And we should also seek to be as concerned as the Apostle Paul was about idolatry that he actually witnessed in Athens. Paul suffered from both the Jews and the Gentiles because of idolatry. The Jews, even though they had a right God to worship, yeah, because as I said before, they worshiped the God of Revelation, right? But they locked God into a legalistic system that made him just as limited as those who locked their God into a marble statue. We need to ask ourselves, do we also engage in that kind of idolatry? Where yes, we have experienced, we have seen, we have experienced salvation through Jesus Christ. We've seen the work of God. We've actually been blessed. God has shown us his grace. God has shown us his mercy. God has shown us favor. But yet, we seek to somehow change the relationship to the extent that we become, try to become sovereign and God then becomes, right, yeah, subservient. And so we somehow want God to be in line with our desires, our expectations, our aspirations, etc., I was sharing with her on the phone um, a couple of days ago with Brother Jide um, because I w was overhearing a, a ministry on the radio uh, from a family member. And yes, I've learned now to be, yes, that I still don't keep a wise head, so I tended not to sort of say anything. But what I overheard was almost as if the, um, whoever it was, whether it was the minister, almost commanding God 
right? We're going to storm, you know, the throne room and we're going to take captivity of, and we're going to, you know, more or less, as if to say, um, you know, instruct God what kind of blessing or miracles that he should perform. So God has become something like what I would say, like in Aladdin, a genie in a bottle, you know? Right, we conjure him up or we, we, we call upon him as and when we need him on to have purpose. Right? So that wasn't so different from the way in which right, the Jews outside of Christ had an idea of God. And in many ways, many of us as Christians also right, are bought into this idea that God is there to serve our purpose rather than we are there to serve his purpose. Now, we tend to dismiss idolatry because we think only of those yeah, of those of, of, of visible forms of idols. Nevertheless, we do not escape idolatry so easily. And it comes in very subtle ways. Consider this experience of a well-known missionary to China, Isabel Kuhn who was with the China Inland Mission, which was a major missionary society in the 19th century, and early part of the 20th century. And she wrote in her book, in the arena, of how and when she told her mother of the call to go to China. Her mother responded, If you go to China, it will be over my dead body. I will never consent. Now, you're probably thinking, of course, that her mother was not a Christian, but you would be wrong. Her mother was actually the president of the Women's Missionary Society and was a mature Christian leader. Right? And it was in many ways her Christian lifestyle that led to her daughter hearing God's call to be a missionary. But what was going on here? It is simply idolatry. Because this Christian mother did not have a clay small God she bowed down to. But what she had was her own image of what her daughter should be, and that image meant more to her than God's will for her daughter. She resisted God because God was threatening her idol and shattering her image of what ought to be. She had erected a mental image of her daughter's life, and because it meant more to her than God's plan, the mental image was just as much as an idol. So just because the Christian escapes the lower level of what we could say um, primitive form of idolatry, it doesn't mean that we escape the higher and more sophisticated level, which is just as dangerous and will lead us to having an estrangement from the true and living God. Paul deals very strongly with, his, with this mental level of idolatry when writing in Colossians chapter 3, verse 1 to 2 where he says, set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. Then he gives examples of these earthly things in verse 5. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality and impurity, lust, evil desires and greed, which is idolatry. So there it is, as I mentioned earlier, right? Yeah. All sins in some ways is a form of idolatry. And idolatry always leads, yeah? to other sins. 
So Paul is saying that Christian growth is a matter of a battle against idolatry. Yeah, it is not a matter of sticks and stones, but of our mental attitude, right? Of coveting for the flesh. You know, I want this and that. I want to satisfy my body and my mind's image of what is good, regardless of whether it is the will of God or not. You know, so idolatry, in summary, is saying, not God's will, but my will be done, right? So this makes idolatry far more frequent in the Christian life than we realize. Charles Spurgeon, the great preacher of the, 20th, of the 19th century, once says, we're all idolaters. I say we are all idolaters by nature, all of us. And because it is so, anything can become an idol in the place of the living God. So almost anything outside of God can become an idol. Right? Solomon. Mm. He was the wisest man of his, of, that the world has ever seen, apart from Jesus, of course. Yet he became a fool by going after other gods. In 1 Kings 11, 4, it says, As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God. Solomon didn't just give mental assent to idols either. Solomon, you could say, was the first world leader to think he could achieve world peace and make the world one big happy family by treating all gods and all religions as equal. I'm sure that kind of resonates with some of what happens in our world today. Yeah, but yeah, we see Solomon already, right? Yeah, trying to somehow, you know, bring world peace, right? True religion, yeah? But as we know, it was a total flop. And it led to the division and then the destruction of his own kingdom. And as I mentioned earlier before, right, you look, you read through the accounts in Chronicles, in Kings, right, Samuel, the sin that reoccurred time and time again in all the reigns of those monarchs, the, the Judaic monarch, is a sin of idolatry, right? Some far worse than the other, right? But it was still idolatry, right? So we see from that time, yeah, idolatry is still a major challenge, right? But we have read, we have studied, you know, about history and about Solomon and so on. But it seems that the only thing we ever learned from history is that we never learned from history. Because many lesser people, many lesser men than Solomon have tried the same experiment, right, of somehow trying to treat all religion and all belief as equal. And it has led to the same destructive result. Because when, just as with the children of Israel, when you forsake the true and living God, right? Yeah, you will end up God forsaken. Humans, men, will never cease to keep trying to make their own gods. The reason is because man like Satan make his first idol the self. Self is exalted above God. And if our time, we could actually look at some of, you know, the, um, what you could say, period of the Enlightenment, where suddenly, right, um, people went away from a very, what you could say, institutional version of what um, the God of the Bible was, to where humanity, our human beings, became the center 
of our reality. But we haven't got time today. So idolatry has always plagued humanity. But as I said, as with Satan, man seeks to exalt himself above God, right? Which is the origin of idolatry. Right? But it makes people to wonder that how is it possible, right, that a human being who can't even create a worm, right, begin to somehow delude themselves that they can create a God? Yeah, that's just one of those, yes, yeah, absurd ideas. Would someone who can't make a birdhouse have the audacity to try and build a cathedral? Or would someone who can't lift his or her suitcase try and enter the weightlifting contest in the Olympics? Quite often, the vast majority of us can face up to our limitations in almost every area of life, except when it comes to making gods. And here is where everyone feels confident in doing, and the result is we have not gone beyond Athens as we so wrongly assume. The Greeks, you know, they were brilliant and creative people. Their civilizations still have a major impact on our world today. It was the birthplace of Western democracy and many of the great ideas we treasure today. You know, many of the great orators and philosophers stood where Paul stood in Mars Hill. You know, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, yeah, were there. But all of these geniuses of these people was not used for the glory of the true and living God who made them, but for the glory of the gods they created, they made. And so this is the real issue of life. Will we serve the God who made us or the gods we make? This is the ultimate choice of every human being and every nation. Do we choose to serve right, the true and living God or do we create gods right, in our own likeness and after our own desire? It's one of the satisfactions of life of any people or of any person when the gifts God has given them are not used to glorify him, but to glorify some God of their own making. Everything we do, we do for the God who made us or for the gods we make. Just think of that for a moment. Everything, every activity we do, we're either doing it yeah, unto the true and living God or we're doing it unto the gods we have made. Power. Sex, money, right? All good things in themselves are necessary. But when they blind us to God's will so that we pursue them rather than his will, they become idols which destroy our relationship to God. C.T. Studd, the great missionary, tells of how you can spot an idol in your life. What is in the heart dictate to the tongue were his words. He became so in love with the sport of cricket that it was all he could talk about. He stopped talking about Christ and talked only about cricket. He realized that he had become an idolater. Now, let me not put a dampener on those amongst us who like cricket. I, I do, yes. I don't know, Elder Neil, um, Peter Beggs, and Uncle Selwyn. We all like cricket. We all come from the Caribbean and 
I think we grew up in that culture, that era where cricket was one of the major recreational outlets, right? And I know of two very distinguished cricketers, um, David Shepherd, who represented England in the 50s, and Conrad Hunt, who turned out for the West Indies in the 60s, were, you know, very accomplished cricketers, right, during their playing time. But at the height of their careers, they were called by the Lord to go into full-time Christian ministry. And in their later biographies, they both expressed no regrets in God changing their priorities from cricket to Christian leadership. It happens to all Christians at some time in their life. The idol may be a close relative, a spouse, one's education, one's profession, one's career, right? And other gifts or blessings from God. Just reflect back or, you know, think back to um, the Hebrew children, right? What did they use to construct the molten image? It was the gold and precious metals that God had blessed them with on leaving Egypt. But instead of using it for the purpose that God intended it, they used it instead to create an idol. And so we can so easily get easily drawn to making the things that God has blessed us with to become our idols, to become our central focus. The things that more or less determine yeah, our decisions. Yeah, what we preoccupy, what our minds are preoccupied with, etc. And as we're coming to a close, let me say yes, idolatry is not dead. But it's alive and well. And it's one of the battles we as Christians fight constantly. Just as the people of God in the whole testament. But we have an advocate. We have a person in Jesus Christ. Who is able to give us that victory of idolatry. But it is one of those things that we need to continually put at the foot of the cross. Because it rears itself in all different ways. It is so subtle. It is so clever. It's so conniving. It, you know, in so many different ways, idolatry right, can rear up in our lives. And so we have to constantly be renewing our minds and seeking God's spirit to bolster our defenses against idolatry. So, I, you know, idolatry, awareness of its reality is the first step in victory over it. And that has been my point. Idolatry is far from dead in any of our lives. And it's important that we always remain aware of it. We need to be aware of our idolatry and admit our practice of it. Confess our guilt and ask forgiveness from God who will give us the victory over this extremely, extremely, can't yeah? Yeah, overstate it, extremely dangerous enemy, subtle dangerous enemy. And so, in closing, we can also perhaps share in the prayer of William Cowper, which says, The dearest idol I have known 
whether that idol be, help me to tear it from thy throne and worship only thee. Let's pray. Join us next time for more of God's truth to transform your reality.